Thank you, praise team. Awesome worship. Please be seated, guys. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 16 today. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Here's what the Word of God says. Paul speaking. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, he's in jail when he writes this. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and Paul is paraphrasing Psalm sixty-eight, seventeen. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and the deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even to Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word today. The ancient city of Ephesus gives us some perspective on what it means or what it meant to reach people for Christ in an ancient world, and it also informs us on some ideas that we can take away about what it means to reach Christ in this world, in this city. Ephesus, in Paul's era, he writes this letter somewhere between 50 and 60 AD, and Ephesus is about 250,000 people. By some counts, was the fourth largest city in the ancient world at that time. It would have been considered a metropolis by any any standard of measurement in that day. And uh, Ephesus had all the problems that a city today has. And I have some slides here for you to walk you through a few things. First of all, just to orient you, Ephesus is there on the western side of what we now call Turkey. It was a harbor port. The river, even in that day, was silting in the harbor. If you go on one of those cruises that take you to the seven cities of of, uh, or those tours that take you to the seven cities of the book of Revelation. You go to Ephesus, it's several miles away from the seashore now. The river has silted the harbor in. But back in the day, in Paul's day, it was a major seaport. And if people in the ancient world knew anything about Ephesus, there's one thing they knew and one thing that came to mind. Just like if I said St. Louis, what's the one architectural wonder in St. Louis that comes to your mind? What is it? 
the arch. Okay, well, in Ephesus, one thing came to mind. It's on the next slide. It is the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This long, gleaming white marble building, it was 377 feet long by 180 feet wide. It had 127 granite marble, excuse me, marble columns, which were each 60 feet high. It was impressive. It sat on a hill overlooking the city. So from almost any vantage point in the city of Ephesus, you would see this huge temple of Artemis. And in fact, it also had a financial purpose. It was sort of a primitive bank. Travelers, when they came to Ephesus, could deposit money at the temple and it sort of served as a place where you could hold money. So in addition to worshiping Artemis, it was a primitive bank. Now, there's, you may not know who Artemis is. So let me tell you a few things about Artemis. Because if you understand this goddess, she defines what it meant to be a city, a, a citizen of the city of Ephesus when Paul was writing this letter. So remember, when he's preaching the gospel, every time he shares Jesus in the city of Ephesus, over someone's shoulder, they see this pagan temple glaring down at them. Artemis was a pagan goddess. We know several things about her. First of all, Acts 19.35 indicates that a meteorite was part of the worship here. In Acts 19.35, the people of Ephesus refer to her image which fell from heaven. Not uncommon for pagan people to worship and venerate meteorites. Apparently had one of those there in the temple of Ephesus. And in fact, at Ephesus, Artemis worship had been combined with another goddess. Her name was Cybele. But it really turned into a fertility cult is what it was. Her images, I almost put up a, a slide up here with a statue of, Eph of uh, Artemis. But really, to a degree, they're a bit vulgar. And her upper torso of the statue of Artemis that you would have seen there in that temple, her upper torso was covered with large round protrusions. It was a very vulgar thing. So some have suggested these were multiple breasts. Some have suggested that these were eggs. Some archaeologists have actually suggested that these were the testicles of bulls that were castrated in dedication to Artemis. No one knows for certain what they are on her statue. Here's what you need to know. It was all about fertility cult. They were worshiping sex. That was the center of the city. So this temple dedicated, uh, dedicated to veneration of sex and a fertility goddess stared down on the city. The other thing you need to know about Artemis worship is people made a lot of money because people came from all over the ancient world to go venerate this goddess and go to the temple. And if you read in Acts chapter 19, you're aware that there were silversmiths in that town that made hokey little images of Artemis, a little, uh, you've, you've done, you've bought little things when you've gone, little tokens that you've when you've gone on vacations, well, people did the same thing back then. They would buy little statues of Artemis to take home with them to prove that they'd actually been to Ephesus. And these things made people a lot of money. And when the gospel started being preached, it cut into their income flow. You find out where someone's goat is tied when you start messing with their money. And they became very upset with the apostles as they're preaching the gospel message in Ephesus. It's a fertility cult. A lot of money, are make, money is made around Artemis worship. Even in Paul's days, 
Ephesus was the center of what we would now call an imperial cult. People worshipped Caesar. They worshipped Augustus. They had temples there to Augustus. So I'm just pointing out to you, there were people in Ephesus who were worshipping government and looking for government to solve all their problems. Does any of this sound familiar? Certain inscriptions have been found from Ephesus which describe Artemis as, quote, Savior, or the one who saves, or the one who delivers. But beyond Artemis, they also had a huge theater. You can still see it in Ephesus today. We've got a photograph of it here. That place that 25,000 people could sit in the theater at Ephesus. It was massive. And what we know about the ancient Greek and Roman plays is they were vulgar. And there are some inscriptions that indicate they actually had gladiatorial fights at the theater you're looking at right now. There. You think of the Colosseum when you think of gladiators battling, but apparently they battled right there in that theater. So I want you to get in your mind. This is a large city with a temple to a fertility cult overlooking the city. The theater was dedicated to these vulgar plays with all sorts of lewd themes and then combat to the death so people were entertained by violence. Sounds a lot like Hollywood today, right? The other thing you need to know is they had a huge, really, a uh, stadium at Ephesus. This is the remains of it. And they would do gladi- uh, they would do, not gladiator races, but they would do chariot races there. It was their version of NASCAR. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a NASCAR race, uh, I don't know if they had people throwing chicken wings on the people down below them in the stands like they didn't like the Jeff Gordon fans even back then or whatever. I don't know. But they, they did have these chariot races and people would, by the thousands, would pour into this theater to watch entertainment. And not only that, it was a sensual city. Let's go to the next slide if we can. This is probably the, the most famous piece of archaeology from Ephesus. It is an advertisement. I know it doesn't come out too clearly on the slide, but what you're looking at is an advertisement for an ancient brothel. It was a paving stone in the street. So when you walk down the street of Ephesus, the footprint there basically says, if you could understand it, I'll walk this way to the brothel. And there's a, it's hard to see, but there's a picture of a woman there saying that if you go there, this is what you'll find. And there's actually directions. It says, go to the library and turn left if you could see it clearly enough. I want to help you understand what we just described. This is the city to where they're preaching the gospel. A city with a fertility galt staring down on everyone, this temple to Artemis. A theater where thousands of people would pour in to watch men fight to the death or watch lewd and impure plays. A stadium where people by the thousands were addicted to sports. A place where there was a temple where people basically worshipped the government. Brothels. This was Ancient Ephesus sounds a lot like 2018. Sounds a lot like 2018. And the gospel penetrated Ephesus. If the gospel could penetrate Ephesus in that era with everything they had, why should we be intimidated by anything that's happening in Wichita today? Now, the city of Wichita was founded in 1865 by a man named Jesse Chisholm. His father was Scottish. His mother was Cherokee. And he set up a trading post on the Arkansas River. Notice the proper pronunciation. The Arkansas River set up a trading post here in 1865, right after the Civil War. And very soon thereafter, Wichita springs up around that. It's founded as a city in 1870. They, uh, Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe ran a spur line over here and very soon this became a place where people dropped their cattle off 
And there was actually a sign at one point as you came into Wichita back in the 1870s. Here's what the sign said. The sign said, anything goes in Wichita. A lot of things haven't changed over history. Can I get an amen? Anything still goes in Wichita. You go, we went out praying last week and some, uh, last night. We're praying for the city, prayer walking. And you guys that are on the prayer walk, you know, anything goes in Wichita. And so this is where we're at. And this is a city that's had famous lawmen. My goodness, we've had Wyatt Earp, of all people, was here in Wichita. And then Carrie Nation smashed her first bar in Wichita. All sorts of history right here in Wichita. And here we are, over 300,000 people in the city limits, 600,000 people in the major metro area, and every one of them need Jesus Christ. Every one of them need to have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just like Ephesus was a city with a lot going on, Wichita was a city, is a city with a lot going on, but the same gospel that penetrated Ephesus can penetrate this city. And in the middle of that city of Ephesus, here's what Paul says. He says, you need to be a unified church. That whole passage we just read, Acts, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul says, if we're going to reach Ephesus for Christ, you've got to be a unified church. Listen, if Emmanuel Baptist Church is going to reach Wichita for Jesus Christ, you've got to be a unified church. There must be unity in the church. We're going to see six ways that you can establish unity in the church. You ready to follow along? There's an outline in your bulletin. You can look with me. First of all, unity in the church flows from the Holy Spirit. We can't create it artificially. It flows from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. It says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit... When you're saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. So when you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and when I'm saved and I've got the Holy Spirit living within me, the Holy Spirit within me bears witness to the Holy Spirit within you, and that creates peace. It flows from the unity which comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, we as Baptists get quite nervous whenever someone starts talking about the Holy Spirit. A number of years ago, I was at a professional academic meeting. I was sitting across the table from a man who was the retired president of the Assembly of God Theological Seminary down in Springfield, Missouri. They have a very different view on some spiritual gifts than we as Baptists do, as you know. He said something very insightful to me. He was teasing, and there's a lot of truth in what he said. He said, Dr. Branch, I think you Baptists believe in the Father, the Son, and what's his name? And there's a lot of truth in that because we as Baptists get afraid of the Holy Spirit. We're afraid, well, what's going to happen? People speaking in tongues. What people start speaking in tongues, preacher? What are we going to do if people start preaching and speaking in tongues in the church? One time there was a Baptist church. They didn't speak in tongues. And this guy stood up at the front of the church. He started speaking in tongues. Just started speaking in tongues. And the pastor said, well, I've never had this happen here at a Baptist church. I don't know what to do. Uh, I, but Paul says someone needs to interpret. Does anyone here have the gift of interpretation? A, a deacon in the back said, Pastor, I got the gift of interpretation. He didn't know his deacons had any spiritual gifts, much less that one. So he said, but the guy, he walks down the front, the guy's speaking in tongues, and the deacon sits and listens to him and listens to him and listens to him and nods his head. And he gets done speaking in tongues and sits down. And the pastor said, well, well, brother deacon, what did he say? We're, we're all looking. You've got the gift of interpretation. What did he say? He said, well, pastor, I was in the back when he got started, and I didn't catch everything, but I'm pretty sure down there at the end, he pledged $50,000 to our building fund here at the church. I think that's the word of interpretation that I've got. Um, 
You're afraid of the Holy Spirit, some of you. Don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings peace. Some of you see, you're still suspicious. You see someone raising their hands in church. You think, I think they're Pentecostal. That's proof you're a Baptist. Someone raises hand in church and you automatically suspect they might be Pentecostal. That's proof you're a Baptist. Hey, listen, when I was a little boy in school, if you knew what the answer was, when the teacher asked a question, what did you do? You raised your hand. Listen, when I raised my hand in church, it's because I found the answer. His name is Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit take over a worship service I, I some of you more we don't I'm so glad we don't have the outline of the worship service in the bulletin some of you still worked up about that we need to have a book tells us what's going to happen when sometimes you just need to let the Holy Spirit take control you know how you're going to tell the Baptist when we get to the great white throne in heaven do you know how you know who the Baptist is there at the great white when thousands of people around the sea of millions and millions every tribe and tongue do you know how you will tell the Baptist in heaven you know how They'll be in the back of that great crowd going, I don't have a bulletin. Where's the bulletin? Where, where's the bulletin? It's not in the bulletin. Just worship the lamb. Just worship the lamb. But where's that at in the bulletin? Just worship the lamb. Uh, listen, when you come to church, just do what they're going to do in heaven. Worship the lamb. It's okay. The Holy Spirit builds unity. The Holy Spirit builds unity in the church. Let him do it. He builds peace in the church. Notice what else it says about this peace in the church the Holy Spirit builds. He says in verse 2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. The New Living Translation puts it this way, Ephesians 4, 2, quote, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another, making allowances for each other's faults because of love. I've seen so many fusses in church that don't amount to anything. And most of the fusses I've seen in church have not really been about anything doctrinal or substantive. Most of the fusses I've seen in church have just been personality differences. People see things one way and another way. Listen, we've all got our quirks. All of us have our personality quirks. I have mine. My, my family is here. They'll tell you about some of mine. I, I've got times when I don't always act like I'm God's man full of the spirit one morning I got up my daughter reminded me of this last week one morning I got up to do my devotion because I love Jesus and I was going downstairs to drink my coffee and read my Bible and pray to Jesus about the problems of life I had my Bible open I had my coffee I had my journal it's all good and suddenly I heard a fluttering in the kitchen and this bird was flying around the house and I don't know how the bird got in and I became uncontrollably angry at the bird and I started yelling I had this broom in my hand and my daughter came downstairs and I had this broom and I was yelling I was trying to have my quiet time you stupid bird got in here I'm ready to talk to Jesus and I get in the house and I was roaming around the house screaming at this bird about interrupting my quiet time. It's not one of the better moments of my life. <laughs> I've got my quirks. You've got yours too. The, the day after Georgia lost the national title to Alabama. Now I don't hate, all my relatives are from Alabama. It was a painful loss. Oh, that was bitter. I went to Chick-fil-A for consolation. And so I'm going to get sweet tea because that's about as strong as we Baptists get, right? So for consolation. So I'm going to Chick-fil-A to get my sweet tea. And I'm standing, I, I go up and I have my Georgia Bulldog. I wear, when it's cold, I wear a hat, even when I got a coat on. So I had a Georgia Bulldog hat and I walked in and this young man at the counter at Chick-fil-A looked at me and said, ha, 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 would you like me to give you an Alabama hat without order? Ha, ha, ha. And I looked at him, and I said, I don't think that's funny. He said, I'm just joking. I said, I don't think it's funny. 
oh, okay. And he spilled my tea. I made the boy so nervous he spilled his, my tea. That was not one of my better moments. I've got my personality quirks. You've got yours too. We've got to be patient with one another in the church. Because we're all a bunch of, you remember what we talked about last week? It's a mosaic, a mosaic made out of a bunch of broken pieces of glass. You're broken, I'm broken, we've all got our quirks. Of course, what some of you call a quirk, the rest of us think needs mental health counseling. But nonetheless, it's, we, we, we've all got our, we've got to be patient with one another. Now, being patient with one another doesn't mean we overlook bad behavior. But what it does mean is we're we tolerate, we put up with each other and just admit he's broken, he's a little fractured, I'm a little fractured. Listen, let's think the best of one another. Let's not think the worst. Let's think the best of one another. Let's assume someone's acting from good motives. Some church people get so self-centered and narcissistic. Do you know how, a, do you know how many narcissists it takes to change a light bulb? Only one. They stand there and hold the light bulb and the whole world just revolves right around them, screws the thing in place. And you got some of those folks in church. Everything revolves around me. Listen, it doesn't revolve around you. You didn't die for it. You weren't buried for it. You didn't rise from the grave. You're in, you didn't ascend to the Father. It's not you coming back with the armies of heaven. It's his church. Jesus bought it with his blood. Listen, unity in the church comes when we get off the throne and we say, Jesus is in control of this church and he's going to get the glory. Well, that leads to the next point. Unity in the church is based on doctrinal unity. Verses 4 through 6, all these, the word one, do you see this in verses 4 through 6? One is repeated. One Lord, one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. You see all those ones. He's, he just piles them up. It has great rhetorical flair. And what he's talking about is doctrinal unity. Paul gives the theological basis for the unity in verse, that he talks about in verses 1 through 3. He gives a theological basis. There's really no verbs, uh, no main verb in verses 4 through 6. He's just, Paul is saying there's one God, there's one faith. And when he says one faith here, he's not referring to faith in the sense that we place our faith in Jesus, that subjective faith. He's referring to objective content of faith. What is it that we believe about Jesus? You see, when we say the name Jesus, it's very important that we have unity. In context of Ephesus, both Artemis and Caesar were called Lord. The word Kyrios here, the one Lord, Kyrios. That word was applied both to the Roman Caesars and Artemis in Ephesus. Paul says, not so. We don't worship Caesar. We don't worship Artemis. There's one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. One faith, not the subjective act of believing, but the objective content. People say doctrine divides. You start talking about doctrine. Doctrine gets divisive. Listen, I would rather be divided by truth than united in error. There are certainly issues on which good Christians can disagree. People ask me about pre and post millennial. I'm basically pre-millennial, but you can, you can be post-millennial or amillennial and still be a Christian. I, you just don't get to have as much fun as we pre-millennials do with our charts. And so it's the, the, you have all these 
debates, and we can have debates among Christians, healthy discussions, but there are certain things you have to believe to be a Christian, and to believe there's only one God, that he exists as a trinity, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, that he was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect life, he died a substitutionary death, he rose bodily from the grave, he ascended to the Father, he is literally returning, I mean a literal, visible return. We don't need to worry about these apocalyptic movies, about how the world ends. We've read the Back of the book, we know how it ends. Jesus comes back. That's how it ends. And so we we have this these certain truths. Each of these are core components of Christianity. And to deny one is to deny the entirety of the gospel message. We have to have doctrinal unity. Third, unity in the church is grounded in salvation by grace. That's part of our doctrinal unity, is that we're saved by grace through faith. Look at verse 7. Notice what it says. But to each one of us, grace was given. That you can build an entire sermon on those three phrases, those three words. Grace was given. To every one of us here today who is born again, grace was given to us. We did not deserve it. We didn't earn it. God gave it. Therefore, when we come to church, you remember those personality quirks we talked about a little bit ago? God saved that person with all their personality quirks by grace. He saved you and I with all our personality hangups by grace. Because God's shown us grace, let's try to show some grace to one another. I'm so tired of people assuming just the worst about somebody in church. Did you hear what so-and-so said? Did you hear what they said? Did you hear what they tweeted out? Did you hear what they texted me? Did you hear what they said in their email? Oh, how about their Facebook? I'm about to the point, I think Satan invented Facebook. My word. All this childish immaturity. We're saved by what? We're saved by? We didn't deserve it. We did not earn it. Jesus gave it to us. Let's show some grace to one another. Unity in the church comes when we realize we're all a bunch of broken, lost sinners who've been saved by grace. And he's doing a work in our life. I'm a work in progress, and so are you. When I was a young man, uh, August of 1986, I was 18 years old. I experienced a tremendous experience of the Lordship of Christ. I had a dramatic desire for Jesus to be Lord of my life. And over the next two years, I was on this roller coaster ride of growth and immaturity all mixed together. It was really crazy. But during that time, there were some important people in my church, Glenn and Brenda Ragsdale, Philip Payne, Philip Payne who worked in a steel mill, Don Hamby, Richard Cantrell hung sheetrock for a living, loved Jesus Christ, Harry and Joyce Michael, All of these people showed me lots of grace as I tried to move forward in Christ. They they were very patient with me as I had a desire to serve God mixed in with a whole lot of immaturity and lack of sanctification in so many areas. Listen, they showed me grace. I want to show grace to other people. Let's show grace to one another. Unity in the church is celebrated in the worship of the victorious Lord Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 8. Notice what it says that he's quoting Psalm 68. I said 68, 17 earlier, 68, 18. He's paraphrasing it loosely. When he, that's Jesus, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. Now, who, is these, who are these captives? I'll cut to the chase on the interpretation. In context of the book of Ephesians, the idea here is spiritual warfare. There are other places in the Bible where in a a very wholesome and encouraging way, the Bible talks about we are now captive to Jesus Christ. But that's not what it has in mind right here. In verse 8, when he paraphrases Psalm 68, when he talks about people, uh, things being taken captive, it's spiritual warfare. The idea is Satan has been defeated. His power and authority. 
authority is now captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has defeated Satan. Jesus Christ has defeated, defeated sin. Jesus Christ has defeated death. One author said this here in uh, Ephesians 4, 8. This uh, word of captivity applies to the victorious Christ who descends to his throne from his throne in heaven, to, or ascends to his throne in heaven after defeating spiritual forces. It is military language. Enemies have been captured. Ca captured. You see, I have two major problems in life. I have a sin problem and I have a death problem. I have a sin problem that I carry with me every day. This sin separates me from God. My sin is un unpleasing to God. I have a death problem. Death is coming. Someday I'm going to die. And what's going to happen when I die? Listen, at the cross, Jesus Christ took care of my sin problem. At the empty tomb on the first Easter morning when he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave, he solved my death problem. How can I help but worship him when we come together in church we worship the victorious Lord Jesus Christ he is alive and do you understand the world gets that they understand that we're claiming this Jewish carpenter died for the sins of the world and rose from the grave so they expect when they come to church to see people serious about these things and when they come to church and they see us not talking about Jesus where we're talking about well you know so-and-so didn't speak to me today so-and-so got on that committee well, so-and-so over there, and that preacher spoke to him, didn't speak to me. And they hear, I thought you guys were there to talk about sin death being paid, and you're going to heaven, you're not going to hell, and all these important things, but all they hear is this immature chatter. Can you understand what they say? If that's all you guys got, I'm not coming back. When we come to church, we worship the victorious Lord Jesus Christ. He has ascended on high. He hears our prayer. He paid our sin debt. Listen, you get up every morning if you've been saved and you are forgiven. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have a power this world doesn't know about. And when we come to church, we want to worship Jesus Christ. We want to lift his name up on high. And we want Jesus to get the glory. Too often in Baptist life, we get these little personality cults going on. Well, everybody tells us, well, my preacher well this preacher it's like you got trading cards well you know I've got Albert Pujols well yeah you know I got Josh Hamilton or oh, whatever listen what childish stuff listen we're not here to build a cult of personality around some preacher we're here to lift up the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and when you focus on Jesus man how many of you came into the worship service this morning and your mind was on I'm going to worship Jesus today unity in the church comes when we are it's celebrated when we worship the victorious Lord Jesus Christ I, I tell you, there's a song. Have y'all ever seen that, that movie, the play Fiddler on the Roof? Have you ever seen that? I love that. It's one of my favorite plays. We, play, we saw it performed one time live. My wife and one of my daughters saw it in New York. Well, there's a song in that movie that they ought to put in the hymnal at most Baptist churches. You know what it is? Tradition, 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 tradition. Why? Because we worship tradition more than we worship Jesus sometimes. Well, the last words of any dying church are this. We never did it that way before. That's the last words of a dying church. Well, we never did it that way before. We don't worship tradition. We worship the living Lord Jesus Christ. That builds unity, which leads to our fifth point. This, this unity in the church is developed when pastors equip the members. Interesting phrase in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles. I, at a, another time, I want to talk about the apostles being a New Testament office. I don't believe we have apostles today. Some people run around calling themselves apostles. But unless they've visibly seen the, the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't meet the qualification. 
Some as prophets, the word prophets there doesn't mean predicting the future. It means speaking forth the truth, really. And some as evangelists, there are vocational evangelists. But here's our phrase. And some as pastors and teachers, I would remind you, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, the only specific function mentioned for a pastor is has to be able to teach. And some as pastors and teachers. And why are they pastors and teachers? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The job of pastor, the word pastor means shepherd. And the idea of a pastor is to equip you to do works of service that you would serve. And so often we come to church and we have a consumer mentality. Well, what does the church have for me? What are their programs like? What are the facilities like? And all those are important questions that need to be asked. But I'm afraid we get into consumer Christianity where we just act like the church is another hotel or another business or another restaurant. No. We all serve, and the job of pastors is to equip you for service. That's what it says right there. The role of pastor, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. If you are saved, God wants you to serve. Try to imagine this. They just had NASCAR up in Kansas City last night. And so imagine this. Imagine your favorite driver comes around the track, and it's time for a tire change in gas, and he slides into the pits unhooks his harness, climbs out the netting on the driver's side, gets out and starts changing tires on his car, go grabs a gas tan, fills his car up with gas. You say, well, no driver does that. He has a pit crew, right? Hypothetically, could a driver do that? Well, hypothetically, yes. Would they win the race? And the answer is because everybody else has a pit crew. Listen, sometimes people think of church a lot like what I've just described. Well, the pastor does everything, right? Pastor does the preaching. Pastor does the witness. Pastor does all the visiting. Pastor does all the organizing. Pastor does this. Pastor does that. And we're just sitting there watching and saying, look at him go. Isn't that awesome? He's just working himself to an early grave. But we'll, we'll pray for him when he dies. Right? And so it's, that's kind of how we treat it. Listen, church is not like a NASCAR driver doing the entire job. It's more like a well-oiled team. And when that guy comes into the pit, you understand this. Every Every tire changer has to do his job right. The jack man has to do his job right. The guy sticking the water across the wall on that big long stick into the car has to do his job right. The guy, the guy pulling the gas in the car has to do his job. And working together, they work towards victory. This, the body of Christ is not a one-man show. It's just that. It's a body. Jesus is the head. All of us are different parts, hands and feet and knees and arms and heads and shoulders, knees and toes. We're all part of the body of Christ. And the job of the pastor is to equip you for work in the ministry. But the pastor equips the saints for the work of service, building up the body of Christ Sometimes people get worked up about things in church, though, when they don't know half the information. See, when you're not serving, you get grumpy in church. When you're serving and you're working for the Lord, you realize the importance of what you're doing. But when somebody's not serving, they get grumpy. They know half the information. You guys ever heard of Jerry Clower? You ever heard of Jerry Clower, the Christian comedian Jerry Clower? He has a fictional family, the, the Ledbetters. He says, Jerry Clower tells a story. It's completely fictional. But it's about Uncle Versi Ledbetter going to a business meeting at the church. And Uncle Versi heard they were going to buy a chandelier at the church. Well, he didn't like that, so he went to the business meeting. And they said, well, we got time for discussion about buying a chandelier. And Uncle Versi Ledbetter stood up and said, i got three things to say. First of all, it costs too much money. Second of all, where are we going to find somebody that knows how to play it? Third of all, why are we talking about buying a chandelier when what this church needs is some lights? <laughs> and a lot of folks have made comments about that informed about what goes on around the church. 
Because when you're not serving, you get selfish. We need you. Man, we need you to help us reach this city for Christ. We need greeters at every door on Sunday morning. This morning, my wife tried to come in the door at the church, had to find three doors for us. She found one open. I know we got we, all these things we got to do. We need greeters at every door. Imagine you're a first-time visitor and you came here. And how would you find your way around? This is a big, rambling campus. We need you. People need you. We need you on the team. There are people in child care we need you. People in children's ministry we need. We need you all serving together. And the job of the pastors is to equip you for the work of the ministry. Six, unity in the church comes from the fact that all of us are part of the body of the Christ. Notice what it says. We're all part of the body of Christ. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body. When we each do our part, the body grows for the building up of itself in love. Hey, guys. People need a place where it's an oasis of love, where people know that they're going to hear the love of God, about the mercy of God. When we each do our part, we need you. We need you. Listen, some of you have been struggling about which church to unite with. Next Sunday morning, Ryan Reach is going to lead our Next Steps class, our, our new members class. Some of you need to be there. And you need to join with us. Listen, until you join with us, we're, we're incomplete. We need you as we go out together reaching people for Christ in this city. And together, through the glory of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, it can be done. You can be a church that's unified, that spreads the love of Jesus, that makes a difference in this city. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed, every eye to be closed. Lisa's going to come. It's our time of invitation, our time for appeal. And so this invitation is going to be a little bit different. I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to say. This sermon's about unity in the church. Maybe you'd like to come and pray this morning and say, God, I want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And Father, I'm asking you to help me make my church more unified. Father, I'm asking you to stop me from grumbling and from complaining. I'm asking you to show me where I should serve. Some of you, you have talents and gifts that you know the Lord has given you and you need to put them to use for gospel ministry and you're holding back and holding back and holding back and we are incomplete until you join with us. We're all part of the body of Christ. We build it up together. Jesus is the head. We're all pulling together. We need you. Christ needs you. And so you might need to come and pray about those things. Some of you, you know this is a church God's led you to where you need to, to plant your life and invest in reaching this city for Christ. And we're inviting you to come this morning. Some of you have never believed on Jesus. You've never trusted Jesus the way the Bible says. We're inviting you to come that you can be saved. So I'm going to pray. And after I'm done praying, if you need to come and pray about any of these things that we've discussed, we're inviting you to come this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I am praying for people to be saved. I am praying for lost people to be converted. But Father, I'm also praying that each of us will contribute to unity in the church. God, help us think the best of one another. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us to tolerate one another's weaknesses and flaws and quirks. And Father, if there's someone here who has a gift they're not using, God, we need you to help them get involved, God. We're asking you to move in their heart that they would plant their life here. They would invest in reaching people for Christ to this church. God, we're asking you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Call in today. Jesus is tenderly calling. On the first verse, you come while we stand and sing right now.